Oh, here we go, Miles. We are back. We are back. Contrary to the haters, to all the people who said we couldn't make it. Miles, how are you doing, my friend? Tristan, the Seahawks lost the football game, but nonetheless, what a, what a pleasure to be here with you. It's my only highlight. You know, I, I'm realizing you, know, you take for granted the people that are doing a weekly radio show or a daily radio show, I should say. And I've heard them talk about this before different shows, how their ratings go down after a loss. You know, no one wants to hear about a loss. No one wants to talk about a loss. And I can see why people just stop doing something like this, because this isn't the most fun show to do. Like talking to you is a highlight, but having to come on here and talk about a loss just really sucks. So hats off here. Here's my first hats off. Hats off to all the local radio stations around the world that on a Monday morning have to go in after a loss and just talk about it. It's it's not the coolest thing in the world. Hats off to all the hardworking podcasters and radio hosts in Phoenix, Arizona, in Charlotte, North Carolina. That's a lot of, it could be worse. I know it does. It maybe didn't seem like it could be worse, but really, it could be worse. And it sounds like, you know, speaking of this being a highlight, it sounds like you're enjoying the videotapes I'm making of kind of a DK Metcalf catch, cut, then a cut, and it's us talking, really making a great point. Boom. Zach Charbonnet run, and you're liking those video edits I'm making for you. Oh, they're great. No, they're they're great. And I will say a highlight of this game is how um, ice cold your DK Metcalf take was a few weeks ago because DK is, it's as if DK listened. In fact, I hope we can take credit for it. DK listened to the podcast and said, no, I'm super clutch. Like, um, <laughs> don't mess with me, Miles, because I mean, DK looked freaking awesome in this game, right? I mean, he came up clutch um, that massive 52 yard catch, obviously a couple of just really good move the chains. And then, you know, that last catch, I was screaming at the TV with joy as he got us into field goal range. So um, shout out to DK Metcalf, big listener. In fact, our biggest listener of the show. Yes, we're assuming. Again, no way to get in contact with us, but we are. I, th- I think it's safe to assume that, that he enjoys the show. I did actually uh, want to tip my hat, uh, a full hats off yet again, second week in a row, two DK, uh, five catches for 94 yards, one touchdown, 24 yards after the catch. Um, and even though, so he had 42 yards after the catch last week, but I just really enjoyed for the second week in a row just his aggressiveness with the yards after the catch. It seemed like he got all the yards after the catch that there were available on the table. I did want to apologize to Pro Football Reference. I mentioned last week they registered him with zero broken tackles. Well, I had looked that up on Monday. I think it just takes him a little bit of time to go back and look and see the broken tackles. They credited him with three now last week against Washington, which seems appropriate to me. I I only had two. I think he might have broken two tackles on, on one catch there. So... Pro football reference takes takes a little bit of time to get those advanced stats up there. I can appreciate it. Um, so anyway, three broken tackles last week, and it just stood out to me that fourth quarter play of the last three fourth quarters that have mattered. So the last three games, throwing out the Ravens game where the fourth quarter was backups, he has made an absolutely huge play, a winning play at the absolute 
crucial moment of the game. Against the Browns, it was his block to free Jackson Smith and Jigba for that touchdown. And then two really big catches to set up field goals against Washington and now against Los Angeles. Uh, yeah, I, there's something, you know, there's so much going wrong with the Seahawks this week. I think it's it'd, it'd be, I feel bad because I feel like he and Pete had to have had a conversation after that Cincinnati game where that where he had his last penalty that was really tough. But but since then, he's been playing like a superstar. And it's, it's a credit to both of them. So aggressive uh, with a ball in his hands, getting a lot of stats both before and after the catch. And it's been fantastic. And that's one of the tragedies of the NFL, maybe, that so much can – this was a huge problem, how DK's playing at points earlier in the year. It's not a problem anymore. He's playing like a, an absolute star-wide receiver. And yet, you know – so many other things can go wrong. It, it can get lost in the shuffle. I didn't want to lose it in the shuffle. No, absolutely. And it's just occurring to me, um, two weeks in a row with him having the clutch catch at the end of the game, right? Two weeks in a row with him having that clutch catch that sets up the field goal. Absolutely, yeah. And they were, they were, yeah, he, he was just really aggressive. Uh, he was able to get a little more last week against Washington, a little more yardage after the catch, but... I liked his aggressiveness on on both on both. It seemed like his aggressiveness with the ball in his hand was missing a little bit earlier in the season. So something's turned around, and and he's been a very valuable valuable player. And I I felt bad for him actually that it wasn't that the field goal didn't go in at the end of the game. We maybe should say the Seahawks lost to the Rams seventeen to sixteen. Uh, and uh, yeah, I felt bad for him that the field goal didn't go in. So because so, so he didn't set it up for the second week in a row. Hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, so and that's actually a perfect seg- segue into. I texted you after the game, and and my big takeaway, I I was at my brother in law's house um, uh, towards the end of the game, and so because of that, the local TV channel continued to be on in the background, and I heard McVeigh talk for a little while during his press conference. Certainly listened to Pete's press conference, and it occurred to me as I was watching that. How funny a win and a loss in the NFL is. And I suppose this is true in a lot of different leagues. But if you look at 99% of this game, right, they're just going back and forth. At the very end, like imagine a world where Myers makes that field goal. And you might say it's a long field goal, and I would agree. It is not a gimme. Keep in mind, he had made it already from 54 and from 52 yards in that same game, right? So and last week he was like the special teams player of the week. Like, so, so Myers is doing pretty good over the last few weeks. And even in that game, he was having a good game up until that, that, that lo- or that miss, which again at 55 is a, is a pretty solid field goal to have to make. Um, but I thought about it at the end of the game, McVeigh was talking about, man, what a gritty win it is. And they had to figure out a way to finish. And he was really proud of his team for figuring out a way to finish the game in the right way. And Pete was obviously saying the opposite, right? Man, you know, we just need to learn how to finish these games. And it's a heartbreaking loss. And we almost had it. And, you know, yada, yada, yada. It's so funny to think about that they are talking about the same game for 99%. Like if if Myers makes that field goal, it's the opposite. McVeigh would have to say, oh man, yeah, you know, as a team, we really got to learn how to just be tougher and finish the game. And Pete would be talking about how resilient his team was and how they were competing the whole time. And the only difference in actuality 
is Jason Myers, you know, kind of pushing a, a field goal to the right and, you know, a little underpowered. And it's just, I don't know. It, it, it just occurs to me how strange the NFL is and how strange the way that one play at the very end of a game changes the way that a coach speaks about the entire game as if, as if, you know, this one play changes the, the 99% that had led us to that point. So um, that, that was just kind of my, my takeaway after hearing two coaches in the same press conference talking about the same game, just have to take two different stands. I don't know. It's, it's weird to me. It's a great, it is, it is really funny. And the, the person I was thinking of, as you were mentioning that dichotomy was Geno Smith. To, this is the second time now, because he took the hit from Isaiah Simmons in the Giants game. That was pretty, that was pretty tough and, and out of bounds. He took a clean hit, I, I thought, a brutal hit, but a, a clean one from Aaron Donald in this one. Both times, I immediately thought, Geno's gone from like that. So the fact that he actually came back before the end of both of those games is pretty remarkable. And he doesn't just come back. He does come back and leads the team on the brink of, again, not a gimme field goal, but a, a makeable field goal. And it, again... We just the, the kick didn't miss by that much either. We just needed a strong gust of wind one way or the other, you know, just coming in and uh, that might have gone through. Uh, and then and then I think it, it, it's it's tough because it's a missed opportunity to appreciate how tough Gino is and that even though the offense hasn't been the prettiest at times, as I'm sure we'll, we'll get into here as we go on, it's still it was still a, a pretty it, it was an incredible day for him to, to, to come back from that. It, it was pretty remarkable. Yeah, no, I mean, it's another, again, I was thinking of that script, right? If we win the game, you know, Gino is a, a, a gritty road warrior who found a way to win it, you know, at the last minute. And, and even, you know, what's his grade? What's his takeaway at the end of this game versus if they win it? Suddenly, you know, he kind of goes from, ah, oh, yeah, you know, Gino had an okay B game to, that's an A minus, A plus, you know, maybe A game because they won it at the very end. So it's just, it's, it's funny how fickle and how easily these things are moved. But no, I mean, Gino's tough. There's no doubt about that. And it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Travars Jackson years ago when he was, he played through a pec injury, which they say is just incredibly painful and difficult to play through. And, you know, you could tell that the, the players just respected the heck out of him for it. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a really, really great point, man. It, he's definitely doing his part and, you know, a tough, tough, gritty, um, tough, gritty game. Now, despite what I totally see what you're saying, that it only took one play to kind of shade the rest of the game. However, I thought, and I'm curious if you'll agree early in the fourth quarter, when the Seahawks still held the lead in the game, it, it, it just felt like they were about to lose. Did you, did you feel a similar premonition? It just felt like some way the tone of the game was they had their chance to put it away. They didn't do it. And they were, it was going to get out of their hands some way, somehow. Yeah. I mean, it, it had to me definitely the feel of that they were playing with their food and they just needed to, to put it away because they clearly the entire game. I mean, that I just before we started recording, I had to rewatch the first drive. That first drive is it was the epitome of what I want to see in any drive from a football team. I mean, 
it, they're at one point, I believe they were at the 20 yard line and they had, they were perfect. Five runs, five passes. Everyone was involved. Everyone was doing their job. That first drive looks so clean. And it's as if the rest of the game, they were trying to get back to that moment. Like they were trying to get back to this, this beautiful piece of football that for whatever reason eluded them. Um, yeah, I, th- there's a lot of things that, that were maddening about this game, man. I mean, for me, one that I just, I got to say out loud, like with all due, due respect to Drew Locke, like, and to Shane for that matter, like I, I, for the life of me, I don't understand why we come out like gunslinging with Drew Locke. Like, let's just run the football. Let's just try to like, you know, kill some clock and, and see if we can get some of these first downs on the ground. It, it just seemed like such a strange thing. Like his first play, he comes in, they run the football quarter ends. We get into the fourth quarter and then the next play, it does look like they have kind of an interesting thing, like a tight end type screen to the left or, or at the very least a tight end leaked out into the flat. Um, but I mean, it was diagnosed. It had no chance. And the whole time I was like, man, what if we just, what if we just run it? You know, why are we kind of overthinking this right now? Let's, let's try to have some game control. Thank God Gina was able to come back in. I, I was so happy to see him in at the end of the game. Um, not Drew's finest moment. And I got to also say it's a, I mean, what a freaking bummer to throw an interception in a game this close to have Drew come in not be very efficient and throw an interception on top of it was, yeah, that was pretty brutal. Did you think on the interception, just a question here, do you think Tyler Lockett could have done more to attack at the catch point on that and kind of meet the ball at the top? I, I, I don't know. I don't know enough football to give a great answer on that, but that was, that was what I was, I was just wondering. I was just wondering. Well, I mean, first of all, it was underthrown, right? So, I mean, yes. Tyler had a step. So, I mean, man, if if Drew, who and Drew has a great arm. So, I mean, if he just could have put that where he wanted it to, I mean, that's a completion, if not a touchdown. So, that's a bummer. Um, I, I will say this. I I don't know enough from my couch in that moment to, to you know, if I was in the room, if I was, if I was listening to the wide receiver coach, I would be fine hearing it from him or hearing it from, you know, a decorated. But to me, Tyler has earned enough benefit of a doubt. I'm going to assume Tyler did it perfectly. Like Tyler has such a a, a sterling reputation. He has such a high football IQ. He wants it. He he checks every box. So, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. I kind of had the same thought. But then I just I shooed that thought away because I just feel like Tyler's earned it. Like I, yeah, I I'm not going to critique. You convinced me. I, I'm I'm on your side. It it um yeah. Even with the interception, it, it that that didn't help, but it also didn't really change the feeling that they were about to lose. So you used the analogy a minute ago, playing with their food. What I was thinking was that the team is not uh, doing their homework. Mm. which uh, by that I mean scoring touchdowns when they have opportunities to in the first half. And they're trying to cram for the test in the second half. And it's just not going to work out every time in the NFL. It did work out against Cleveland. It did work out against Washington. And but it comes down to the last play. It's just not going to work out every single time in the NFL. Every other team's too good. Here's the first half. Here's what we looked at in the first half. Because – I thought the first half of this game was the Seahawks' best half of football in a lot of ways of, of the entire season. It, was, <laughs> you, it would have been hard to believe 
to whisper to me in the second quarter from the, the ghost of Christmas future and said, by the way, Seahawks are going to lose this one. Uh, first half, Seahawks run 35 plays, which is a ton of plays compared to the Rams 21. So I thought the Rams were in danger pretty early second quarter of like, your offense, the Seahawks offense was on the field for so long. I was like, the Rams have to just get some first downs together or their defense is going to get gassed in the first half. And this is going to split wide open. So Seahawks 35 plays, the Rams 21. Yardage, Seahawks had 193 yards. Rams had 153. But out of the Rams 153 yards, they only produced 84 yards of offense and the Seahawks produced 69 yards of defensive penalties. So, so it's not really 193 to 153. It's really 193 to 84 which is a huge, that's a master class, but the kind of uh, not doing your homework, playing with your food, the penalties were a huge issue. 69 yards of defensive penalties in the first half. It was, <laughs> it seemed like it was going to come back to bite them because you're, you're, you're seeing them dominate, but you're seeing the scoreboard not really reflect it. And, and it, sure enough, it did come back to bite them. I mean, yeah, to your point, that massive pass interference, um, uh, I believe it was it Woolen or was it was it Love? There was a, a it was big love. yeah. Okay, it was Love. Yeah, yeah. Right down the middle, that pass interference. I mean, they were not going to get it down there. Like, I mean, it's kind of like we gifted them a touchdown, um, which was, was such a freaking bummer. Um, I will say, rewatching the game, um, when I watched the game before, when Woolen does his WWE move and like, I don't even know what you call that. I don't know what that, what that move called is. called suplex. So, so the suplex, it, the bummer of, de, of, of Spoon doing that um, is the, a very similar call was called against the Rams in the first drive. When that same basic thing in a much gentler, much nicer way, much more in the flow of the play way was done to Tyler Lockett. And we we were the recipients of a 15 yard, um, uh, you know, personal uh, personal foul like that. Um, And man, it's to me, it's it makes it even harder to see Devin do it because he saw an example on the field of that happening to Tyler and that immediately getting called. Yeah. So in, to, to, in my mind, that means that as a defensive player, you should be able to kind of put that in your head and say, okay, they're not screwing around today. The refs are going to call it. Let's, you know, let's be careful. <laughs> the idea that he, he goes full Hulk Hogan is just, it's, it's rough. I mean, that, that was a really difficult penalty. And I mean, what that was a tackle for what three yard loss, something like that. So we would have been in really good position. Instead, it's a 15 yard gain. Um, you know, call that a net 18. That's that's tough. I mean, you you got to get off the field, and you know, it's another. You know, potentially, it seems to me it's it's another possession we gave them, right? I mean, th- there's a good chance we have them at at second and long. There's a real good chance we get off the field. You know, who knows what happens? But instead, you give them 15 yards for free. Um, you know, you can't give, you can't keep giving 15% of the field away, whatever that love, um, INT or, uh, um, pass interference was, you know, what, that was probably a 40 yard penalty. So, I mean, you give these away, uh, to your point, it's going to come back and haunt you. And it, it certainly did. And I, 
it doesn't feel very fun to give a hats off to the referees, but the Seahawks had 12 penalties in this game, right? It felt like 11 of them were the right call. That final one against Witherspoon in the end zone didn't seem like the right call. It seemed like incidental contact, and that might have been the most costly penalty. Nonetheless, I don't think it really changed the game. It is kind of funny that there's all these issues with the penalties, but it is, it is kind of like, yeah, the Hawks, the Hawks did it, like, there's not really that many flags to debate. I actually kind of thought that we're the recipient of a couple of more generous calls versus uh, that, that that final one against Witherspoon in the end zone. It seemed like the only one that, that stood out as like, that, that wasn't the right call. But to have 11 <laughs> justly called penalties, it's, it's, kind of, it's really crazy. You can't do it. No, you absolutely can't do it. So speaking of hats off, I'll, I'll give mine – um, this is one that I, I do just out of pure respect for the player. Aaron Donald creates problems every single time we play him. And frankly, I shouldn't say every time we play him, this guy creates problems every time he's on the field, every game. And it seems to me though, as I've watched Aaron over the years against the Seahawks, he, there's always, and, and Pete mentioned this, I believe it was on Brock and Salk. There's always two to three, two to four plays that he really just messes everything up for you. And he had a few of those in this game, right? Where he just either, either the, the big time hit on, um, on Gino or, um, other just disruptions in the backfield. There's always a couple of plays where it's like, frick, Aaron Donald, he did it again. And he, he definitely, you can't walk away from this game without seeing his fingerprints on it. And I mean, that's what the great, great players do. Um, I, whenever I watch him, I try to take a step back in the same way when, when I watch LeBron or when I watched Kobe, um, it, to me, it's almost easier in football or in, in basketball to do this, where you see the greats and you just say, I just need to enjoy this guy. I just need to enjoy his game. Um, and Aaron Donald's one of those guys where you, you kind of just have to stop and say, as much as he's driving you nuts as a fan, you kind of just have to give him respect, right? Because he, he's that good and he's that disruptive. Um, is he the best defensive player in the game today? I don't know if that's the case this year. I know he's top five and I know he's always trouble. And, you know, he, he, he's a man who brings it every single week. There's, if there's ever someone that I, I'm scared to, not scared to face, but don't enjoy facing, it's, it's definitely Donald. So um, hats off to that, that terrible, terrible, really, really good football player. Terrible man is what I meant to say, but great football player. And, and I, he's probably a pretty nice guy too. Yeah, hats off to the Rams for keeping him around uh, with all, all the changes yeah. had in the, the last couple of years. Cause yeah. Um, I wasn't going to talk about tight ends. I, f- I felt like I'd hit that a lot until the broadcast dropped a, a really great nugget that stopped me in my tracks. My, my mouth hung open a little bit. A gape. A gape. It mm. was, uh, the broadcast mentioned, I don't know if you caught this one, that, uh, the Rams, the Seahawks, and the Dolphins were the only three teams this year to not have a tight end score a touchdown. So here's the thing about tight ends. It's not that I think that like having three tight ends is the way to win in, in football. We see the Dolphins don't have a touchdown to their tight end. That's the most exciting offense in the league. There's, there's lots of ways to do this, lots of positional groups, lot, lots of schemes. The, way, the reason I keep on coming back to it is – the Seahawks, as an organization, decided to really invest in this position group. 
because out of every team in the league and how much they're spending on tight ends, the Seahawks are number two. So that means they're, they're really emphasizing it. So the fact that the targets aren't going to them, I'm kind of, uh, in this game, there were 40 total passes between Smith and Locke, and only five of them were targeted to tight ends. So uh, the Rams, by the way, are 13th in league spending in tight ends. Dolphins are 20th. So I, I just, I'm a little curious about like, hey, well, why, why spend it if you're not going to throw it? Because the salary cap, it's, it's unforgiving like that. You can't invest huge in a position group that you're not going to kind of lean on. And I was, then I went through the, uh, the red zone targets for the, the three tight ends this year uh, because actually this is the second consecutive game where the team both struggled in the red zone and actually struggled to get to the red zone. So as you mentioned, first drive, marched straight through the red zone, scored a touchdown. Uh, they only got to the red zone one other time in the game and they got knocked out of it due to a penalty. So for the game total, they had five plays for negative eight yards in the red zone. (laughs) But uh, I was really surprised at how few targets the tight ends have gotten in the red zone this year. Pro football reference breaks it out really nice. So for the, for the entire season for, for red zone targets, Colby Parkinson has five targets. Noah Fant has one. Will Disley has zero. So there's not even there's not even opportunities going to these guys uh, in the red zone. So that's six out of 46 total uh, red zone passes on the year have gone to tight ends, and only three out of 20 catches have gone to tight ends. And these guys are good in the red zone. If you look at Noah Fant for his career, he's got 40 targets and 11 touchdowns. Will Disley, he's got 20 targets and 11 touchdowns. So Will Disley has scored a touchdown on half the time he's just been targeted in the red zone. Um, I'm not, I'm not, it feels like a very bizarre disconnect of like, yeah, we're really not going to, like we, you spent big on the tight ends at, at the cost of something else. So it'd be nice just to see those guys, see those guys get, get some red zone targets. It continues to be one of the stranger things about this team, the the talent at tight end, the a, extreme use of tight end in the beginning of the year, the, oh man, this makes all the sense of the world. Look at this mismatch. And then just not being able to continually use them um, or or mix them in enough seems, yeah, it, it seems so weird. I will say this, one thing I noticed, um, speaking of formations that I really liked, there before Ken Walker got hurt, there was a couple of plays where him and Charbonnet were together in the backfield. And I love seeing that. Like I, and, and it, it resulted in a nice, I think it was an eight yard gain for, for Walker on one of the plays that I watched. Um, I love the mixing up of that, right? Like getting, getting all these different personnel groups in is, is really interesting. Um, but I agree with you. It's, it's been, um, it has been shocking to see the lack of, of tight end uh, participation. Um, would you like to hear about a couple of snap counts or or would you rather not hear about a couple of snap counts? I've been waiting to hear about some snap counts. Okay. Absolutely. Did you hear about the sponsor this week? Um, yeah, the sponsor this week is um, Snap Decisions. So there's a lot of times in life where you have to make a quick choice. Are we going to have Italian? Are we going to have Chinese? You know, um, it could be, are we going to... Uh, 
go to a movie tonight or, or are we going to, um, you know, maybe do some community theater? I mean, there's a lot of opportunities in life where you have to make a snap decision. When you have to make snap decisions, snap decisions are there for you and they're ready at all times to be utilized. Um, thank you to snap decisions and that really, um, thriving community, um, snap counts. Here's a couple. I broke them up a little differently. I think I'm going to continue to focus on the rookies because I, I look at them as, um, their snap counts are kind of a double whammy every week. They're learning, they're getting better. They're learning at the the fastest clip of anyone on the team. And I think that they are the benefit of them being in really kind of a uh, snowball. So there's going to be two um, points of emphasis today on snap counts. And I think maybe this is how I do it moving forward. Uh, rookies and then D line, because as you know, I'm a, I'm a nut for a good D line rotation. So, um, here's a snap count spoon, 100% of the snaps. He continues to be a revelation. We all love us some spoon. Anthony Bradford, um, 18% of the snaps, but I thought it was interesting. Pete this week mentioned that he really, they really like him and they want to see him in there more. And, you know, whenever Pete talks about Bradford, he just talks about how big he is and how he moves people, um, which seems like a really good trait if you're an offensive guard to be big and move people. So um, I'd love to get on the payroll with the Seahawks because I think I could help um, it from that respect. I, I get it. I'm aligned with them. He's a very big man and he moves people um, again, you know. NFL quarterback or uh, GMs and and uh, coaches, they are geniuses on par with um, with the greats, you know, with uh, with Einstein. You know, I just really just synonymous with with genius. Um, Charbonnet, 85 percent of the snaps. Cool to see. Um, JSN, 68 percent of the snaps. More Bobo, 40 percent of the snaps. And then two that that will continue to be bummers. And I, I put them at the very end for a reason. Derek Hall and Cam Young, each respectively with nine percent of the snap counts. Um, it, it's a bummer to see them get a lower snap count for for a couple of reasons. And it plays into the D line. So uh, Jones on the D line, 52 percent. Boye Mafe, 66 percent. Um, Leonard Williams, 75%, which is interesting to me. That's where it'd be nice to get a little Cam Young in our lives. And um, uh, Jaron Reed was 67%. So still a pretty nice little mix. You know, no, none of those guys are playing 80% or anything crazy like that. I love the 50s and the 60s staying in that range. Leonard Williams at 75% is a little rich for me. Um Man, really, really hoping and rooting for Derek Hall to and Cam Young to to increase those snap counts because the idea of getting those young bodies in there, letting the veterans rest a little bit, I think could could be absolutely huge. Um, I will say this: as I looked at snap counts this week, um, and I, I guess I, I'd kind of like your thoughts on this. It, a, it, snap counts is starting to get a little boring for me because I've been so focused on rookies. And let me tell let no, let me tell you the why it's getting boring. Here's specifically why. Because it's becoming old hat that that Spoon and JSN and Charbonnet are making big time impacts. And like to say that, like to say that you nailed it on your your two first round picks and your second round pick is it's so funny. Like these guys are making huge impacts in the game, and it's kind of becoming old hat like. Well, of course, Spoon's in there 100% of the time because 
yeah, I mean, he's like one of the best quarterbacks in the league. And you kind of forget the fact that he's a rookie. Um, well, yeah, of course, JSN's in there all the time. He's coming on like a madman and he looks awesome. Charbonnet looks great. I mean, thank God for him this week, right? I mean, you know what happens with running backs. They get hurt. So the idea of having him be able to spell. Um, but I don't know if you found that you're starting to take those three guys specifically for granted a little bit. I, to me, it's almost old hat that they're making awesome impacts on this team. You caught me, and I didn't even realize you caught me. I, I have been taking it for granted. I think, you know, a couple of losses lately here, it has been easy to forget that the, the 2023 draft was, was an absolute monster one for the Seahawks. I mean, it's hard to paint a realistic picture uh, of having a, a draft class make a bigger impact for the second consecutive year in a row. I mean, that's, I, yeah, it, it's an exciting time because, because yes, there's, there's so many contributors that are first or second year and rookies usually don't impact winning in the NFL. It, it's kind of a, you, you're just trying to build experience in that first year and you impact winning later, but that hasn't been the case for the Seahawks at all. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, you, you know, it's funny to talk about starting to take for granted when we started this podcast, Jake Bobo was only a feel-good story. All he was was an undrafted rookie that happened to make the team that everyone seemed to like, and he was kind of a mascot. Jake Bobo, 40% of the snaps, and I mean, you felt him in this game. Like, he made some key catches. He was a part of the game plan. Um, I'm not saying that he's, you know, destroying the NFL and he's the greatest wide receiver, but man, like, he's he's making his impact plays, so... Um, I think it's an interesting snap count in that there certainly has been some great uh, contributions from uh, from those top three guys from an undrafted rookie. Um, and yeah, I'll just hold out hope that Derek Hall and Cam Young can keep making an impact and, and hopefully they can continue to earn more time because um, I would love nothing more than to see Leonard Williams with his feet up on a Gatorade uh, uh, cooler, you know, just with some sunglasses on just relaxing in the sun. You know, I, I love nothing more than Jaron Reed to be able to just chill. So we'll, we'll hope for that. Just waiting for third down. Both That's of them. right. That's right. Um, I had two Pete nuggets today. I went down to the river to mine for Pete nuggets. I didn't just find one. I, I found two about two completely different subjects. Uh, Two different rivers in that in that respect, or was it the same river that you were mining? It was the same river. Hmm. Uh, Brock and Salk, seven ten <laughs> Seattle Sports. <laughs> hey, I love giving. Hey, you got you got to give work cited. I love it. This river was full of nuggets. I, there's only time to share so many nuggets. I found two nuggets in the same river. What do you want me to do? You took, nuggets. you took the, you took my silliness and you turned it into an actual analogy, which I thank you. Thank you for doing that. Uh, yes, a, a mighty, a mighty spring over, uh, yes, a riverbed full of golden nuggets. First thing. So they address the penalties and how many penalties there were. And Pete takes responsibility for the penalties. He says, this is on me. I get, he said something to the effect of, I get these guys too hyped up. And then they get in there and kind of take it too far. And I love this moment because it makes complete sense and no sense at the same time. It makes no sense because Pete's been this way 
for many years. He's kind of a national celebrity for this reason. The Seahawks historically have not had issues with penalties. I, th- I think it's fair to say. Uh, this is this kind of an outlier year where they're leading the league or, or near the top of it. They're also not doing it with dirty play. It's kind of these undisciplined, you know, brain fart moments. Uh, right? I mean, um, so Pete's been this way for many years, and he's taking blame for it. It doesn't make sense because, like, well, nothing really changed from the past Pete years. It's just, it's just kind of a problem that's happening. Yet, it makes complete sense because it's hard to think of a better way than the coach strategically using the media and his talking to the media is such a big responsibility in his job and it would create a really big problem if he said you know you know <laughs> it doesn't even matter what he said if he just put the blame on any type of player you know or, or any individual player and said you know these guys are blowing it for us or, or something like that it, it doesn't even matter who or what but then just internally within the team you know then that guy, whoever the player is, would kind of be like, oh, man, you know, he threw me under the bus out there. But whatever's going on out, like, the players can know inside the facility, Pete's not going to throw them under the bus out there. He'll he'll just take it on himself for, uh, just because it's, like, the right and smart thing to do in terms of, like, keeping the whole machinery of of this gigantic team with dozens of people moving. Uh, Yeah, what do you you think about that? No, it's. I think it's a really good point, and I I noticed it as well as he talked through it, and and in the press conference they also asked him about it, and yeah, I think Pete, you talk about masterclass, um, and I think that Pete Pete gives a masterclass in deflection and in taking responsibility. He does he does it in this respect, and we've heard him do it in the past as well, where um, he has no problem trying to take as many arrows as possible off the players and onto him, right? Hey, this is my fault. We need to you know, fix this up. Um, to your point, in some ways, that's kind of funny because it's like, well, this shouldn't be surprising. This You've been the same kind of coach forever. Um, so it, in this way, it's a bit transparent of what he's doing on their behalf, but you still got to love it. I mean, it's it's Pete doing that. And and hopefully, you know, they can all take it to heart and and honestly, um, you know, fix these things. And, and hopefully during a... Tw- a, a a very short tell the truth Monday, right? They were able to review this film and say, we gift wrapped this game to the Rams. We we did not have to lose this game. And if you cut these penalties down, you probably win the game. And so hopefully it was a good example to them of, Hey, we, we, we fix a few of these things and, and we'll be fine. And, and to your point, I think it's a great point. Out of the twelve penalties, I think I agree with you. I think ten to eleven. Yeah, <laughs> yep. yep, we did it wrong on that one again. Um, so yeah, no, it's it's a uh, it's it's a a credit to Pete. What's your uh, what's your second nugget? Yeah, so they're asking about Brock Purdy since uh, matchup coming up against the Niners uh, this week and, and two times in the next three weeks, which is really crazy. And, and the question was a good one. It, it is just kind of funny that. There are so much, so many resources spent on scouting the draft across the NFL, and then also the resources, the financial resources that teams spend on these high draft picks. And yet, here comes Brock Purdy from deep in the seventh round. Uh, you know, one of the best statistical seasons in the league this year. And they were kind of like, the, the question was basically, how can this happen? 
And I thought Pete's answer was, was very interesting. He, he pointed to, because there's also some very highly drafted quarterbacks who are having a pretty tough time of it across the league, uh, not just in the 2023 draft, but you know, in the last four or five years. And Pete mentioned that it can just be a really high-pressure situation to be that highly drafted of a quarterback. And it made me realize if there was actually a high degree of intentionality of at least through Pete's time with the Seahawks, there haven't there hasn't been a huge amount of resources spent on getting a quarterback in the door. And I wonder if instead of going like instead of being focused on, oh, this is a can't miss prospect, you know, in, in college, but look at all the things he's doing in college. It it occurred to me to be very wise for Pete to be looking a few months down the road and going like, okay. There's, there's great prospects putting a, up tape every year. No matter what, once you get them in the door, it's a pressure scenario for anybody to be a top five, top ten draft pick, and you come in and the expectations are on you from the start. So I, I, it just made me realize maybe it's just a coincidence of how it's gone that, that the Seahawks haven't had a first-round player as their quarterback during 14 years of, of Pete Carroll. But it, it, made, it made me think of that it's maybe a very intelligent design of just saying, hey, we're going to get a capable quarterback in the door and the fact that they're not going to be a gigantic name off at the start, the fact that they're not going to have a huge salary from the start, those are actually, that's the, that's the water and the nutrients that's going to be able to make them grow, you know? Yeah, I mean, water and nutrients, I think, is an, an interesting analogy because the opposite of that, you think about the pressure, I, I, the word toxicity comes to mind and, you know, not being able to get out of your own way. And, and we see that with a lot of players over the years, you know, maybe even even the 49ers are a good example of that Trey Lance, right? They trade up to get him. Um, now, maybe he wasn't the right pick. Maybe he was. But to your point, there's a lot of very intelligent NFL personnel. And I mean, we look at the 49ers, all we say when we talk about the 49ers is, man, this is such a well-built team, right? I mean, they they have done a, a talk about a masterclass in building a team the right way. And so to look at that team and also say, yeah, they're super smart with personnel, but they were idiots for drafting Trey Lance. It's like, well, no, that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. Like, you know, obviously these guys know what they're doing. Um, but you think about that pressure level and you think about, um, what goes into, um, being successful in the NFL and all the intangibles. And then, you know, it's interesting that we don't live in a world where it's just Brock Purdy, who is an example of it, or actually let me, let me flip my, my thought there. We live in a world where it's not just Tom Brady as the example of, you know, the, the lowly drafted guy that does well. We have a few of them in the league like that, right? We have Brock Purdy. For goodness sake, we have Geno Smith as someone who started fairly high, second round pick, and um, was able to get away from that toxicity of all those expectations and then, you know, flourish now. So plenty of plenty of opportunities to look around the league and see devoid of silly expectations when you actually give a chance give someone a chance to learn and to think and to grow. Um you know, what that allows them to do. So I think it's a really good point. Um, I was in a slightly different river, although I think um, these rivers were working from the same tributary. Um, I was uh, 
in in the river of the Monday press conference that was released uh, yesterday. And listening to a question from the great Greg Bell from the Tacoma News Tribune, TNT is one of my one of my favorites to read. Greg's one of my favorites. And and Greg asked the question that I have been asking you that that we've been bringing up on this podcast. And I love the way he asked it. He basically just said, like, hey, um, that might have been your best drive to start the game. That might have been your best drive of the year. You guys went out and you, you nailed it, got that first touchdown. But you seem to be falling apart after the first drive or so. What's going on? And, and he alluded to the idea of game scripting and how much the Seahawks script. Um, and Pete dodged it at first. I, I I actually listened to the question twice because Pete's pretty good at dodging and, you know, kind of poo-pooing a question and moving on. And he did that. His first response is, well, no, you know, we we had some pretty good drives after that first drive, too. So, I, you know, I don't think it's a matter of scripting. And then kind of classic Pete, they just he just kind of kept talking and then backtracked on everything he said and basically ended it with ended it with. But yeah, you know, the scripting might be hurting us a little bit. We might be better in the beginning. So it was interesting seeing Pete kind of show his cards a little bit that um, and I think it's supportive of, of maybe a thesis we've had on this this podcast that um, I think Shane Waldron is really, really good at game scripting. I, and I think that's clear. Like we we can see multiple examples this year of Shane scripting really good opening drives and then not being able to adapt once the the defense makes their um, their adaptations and not being able to kind of do that, you know, uh, um, counter punch. And it, it seems really clear to me. And I say this again with, you know, I'm not looking to be a jerk, but I say it like it seems like a, a strength of Shane's is the the initial scripting and maybe a weakness is how to adjust after the adaptations from um, from the defense. And and I felt like like Pete kind of gave us a little bit more this week than we usually do when, when it comes to game scripts. And um, since we've talked about it a few times, I just I wanted to mention it because it seems a bit self-evident. Can you script the entire game? You know, they say, why not? Why not make the entire plane out of the black box? You know, can you can you script the entire game? Except what what would happen? That'd be <laughs> nice. Everyone tried. And on the sixth play of the second quarter, we will do this. Yeah, it would be nice. Um, they did ask, like, how much do you script? And then Pete would not answer that question. And, and actually, Greg calls him out. He's like, why are you acting like it's a state secret? He literally says that to Pete, which I thought was really, really funny. Um, shout out to Greg Bell, massive fan of the show. Um, and maybe we can have some Hamahama oysters at some point together, Greg. That would be, that would be lovely. Um, how are we looking on this old playoff picture, Miles? Well, I mean, look, I'm, I'm freaked out. I'm a Seahawks fan. We just lost a game that we all know we should have won. I mean, that's, it's the worst kind of game to lose. It's a, it's a punch in the gut is all hope lost. Miles, all hope is lost. Wait a minute, I'm taking a closer look. Not all hope is lost. Uh, the the playoff picture in the NFC, I can't remember. It seems all right. So here here's the scenario: is is basically there's a huge gulf between the seven playoff seeds and everybody else. There's a little bit of closeness in that the NFC South is all pretty bunched together. So one of those teams is is definitely going to make it, but um. 
The Seahawks, as of today, they sit in the sixth seed at six and four. The Minnesota Vikings, which what a story <laughs> that is, is becoming with, with Josh Dobbs. They're at six and five right behind them. And then it's a huge jump down to um, teams eight through 11 are all at four and six. That's the Packers, Rams, Falcons, and Buccaneers. Uh, the commanders are at four and seven. So you have to think, all right, that's two wins behind already. One of those teams would have to jump over, you know, one of, one of the s- seven playoff teams in order to, to get in. It seems unlikely. And yet, I'm wondering if the Seahawks not getting some of these early season wins, it's kind of like their first half of the games, you know, they didn't really put it away like they could. And then, <laughs> and then things started to unravel in the second half. I hope the season doesn't take the same shape because in a way it's nice that the playoff picture is so forgiving and they're really, I wouldn't be surprised if these same seven teams, you know, made the playoffs. It, it seems like shocking if, if for somebody to emerge from this under 500 group and actually overtake and get into the playoffs. On the other hand, that does make it, the Seahawks have a very tough four game stretch coming up. It does not get tougher over a four game stretch in the NFL and it does make it feel it's it's uh <laughs> it, it would just be it would really be slipping on a banana peel here to to fall out of, out of the playoff picture so um <laughs> yeah i um yeah it's i i hate to point out the obvious but it 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 again makes this loss all the more of a gut punch right cuz you mentioned that the rams are at 4 and 6 we're at 6 and 4 you win this game, you're at seven and three. They're at uh what, four and seven and three and seven. I'm sorry, three and seven. Right. Really? Oh, really? Oh my god. Yeah, yeah, because this oh. is when yes, they're, they're, so the Rams are two and six against the oh rest my. of the league. <laughs> I mean, you, you... <laughs> uh, it really makes this one tough, Miles. I mean, I, I I'm all about wash it off, move forward, you know, don't dwell on the past. This is a really dumb game to lose because yeah, you, you basically could have punched their ticket. You, I mean, that would have been a knockout blow. Like you're not coming back from three and seven. You're at seven and three. You've demoralized the Rams. It's at that point over for them. The idea that you're keeping them, you kept them in the game. You have kept them. They have a puncher's chance and maybe better than a puncher's chance. And to your point, listen, if we were facing Tampa Bay, you know, on Thursday, or if we were facing, I don't know, the the Giants again or something like that, you'd say, okay, no, look, here we go. It's in front of us. Let's go. This is a really, really tough stretch. So, I mean, yeah, it's time to put on our big boy pants. I'm going to stop complaining. I'm washing it away. Let's move forward. You just got done telling me there is hope. And I already feel kind of not so super hopeful, but um, I'm going to let the optimist inside of me take over. Let's go. Let's, hey, it it ain't going to be pretty. It ain't going to be easy. Let's just play. Let's go. Let's go. Let's, let's take on those, those 49ers. Let's, oh my, it's going to be tough. The thing about this this team though, is you get the feeling if they do get out of their own way and put everything together, it's like, yeah, it it would not be a surprise to see them beat the Niners at home or on the road. Uh, The Cowboys and the Eagles also coming up in the next month. If if everybody plays their best game, it it wouldn't even be surprising to see them win that, but we just, 
we just haven't seen it come together for all 60 minutes for a pretty long time now. Yeah, we I, I would say we probably haven't exactly seen that yet. Um, but hey, let's keep getting better. Um, let's keep getting putting one foot in front of the other. Uh, I'm going to I'm just going to shut up. The floor is yours, sir. All right. Uh, every this is the return of everybody who's a fan of the 1950s in the NFL. Uh, I know there's a lot of big 1950s fans out there. This is the return of the Lombardi football hour. I have been reading the very long biography of Vince Lombardi, When Pride Still Mattered by David Baroness. It's, it's, it's a really good book. And there were two things that jumped out to me about Vince Lombardi's career. Here's what I'd say, is that both of these things are going to sound appropriate to what we think about with old, old-time football. They're not really going to be that shocking. But then I think when you put them up against one another, it's really bizarre, and it makes me realize I have no idea how sports worked back then. I understand how it works now, but here we go. So, Vince Lombardi was the New York Giants offensive coordinator from 1954 to 1958. He was a coordinator, gets, gets hired up by the Packers, interviewed for their role in January of 1959, the coaching cycle. That works on the same calendar. I know how that works. I know how this part works. So, here's the thing. When he is interviewing for the Packers' role in the winter of 1959, He's actually not coaching the Giants at that point. What he's doing is he is working as an executive for the Federal Bank and Trust Company, which was the bank that the New York Giants used kind of for their finances. And this was, it seemed like that was kind of the rhythm of his season, that the money was small enough that he did have to take an off-season job in a completely unrelated field of of banking. Um, And it sounded like that was kind of what he did. And what kind of everybody did. Um, so that seems to kind of track, right? Like, okay, there wasn't. And so you have to work an off-season job. I think even Steve Rabel's talked about that, about like like players had to do that in the 70s, I, I think, uh, kind of work an off-season job. So we got that. Now here's fact number two. So it's 1961. It's Lombardi's third year with the Packers. And they go on. This is his first year winning the NFL championship. They crush his old team, the Giants, 37-0. Here's what happened that year. So it was the Cold War. And in the middle of the season, because of like military concerns, a bunch of players started to get called away to military duty. And one of those players was the Packers running back, Paul Hornig, who was the MVP of the league. He was their running back, and he kicked their field goals. Best in the league. Heisman Trophy winner, he's one of these players who is called away. It was just a handful of players, but he's called away in the middle of the season to military duty. But it was arranged that he could be excused from his duty to play in this championship game. How did that happen? Well, here's how it happened. Vince Lombardi placed a personal phone call to President John F. Kennedy's private line because JFK had given him that phone number personally when they met during Kennedy's 1960 presidential campaign in Wisconsin. So these things happened two years, a couple years away from each other. There was so little money in the NFL that Lombardi had to work as a bank executive in the offseason. And yet the NFL was watched by so many people even back then. This is, this is the equivalent of Joe Biden giving, of giving Mike McDaniels his phone number with the Dolphins because like 
Lombardi hadn't won anything at this point. He wasn't the legend yet. He was the up-and-coming hot prospect. And it's like, yeah, yeah, Mike McDaniel, like, uh, you know, you're, it's valuable enough to me that, you know, if you need my help, you can call me. And Lombardi did need his help. He did call him, and he got the help. So I don't, I cannot square those two things with each other. I don't know how, like I said, I don't know how it worked that, yeah, I don't know how it worked. How did it work back then? <laughs> That's incredible. That's, that is such an awesome tidbit of information. The, the idea that the president, call it the president. Oh yeah. Yeah. We can, we can get that guy back for you for this championship game. No, no problem. Um, I love the analogy of like Mike McDaniels to Lombardi, like that. That's where he was at in his um, his stage in his career, which is a, it's a really easy like thing for my brain to grab onto. Um, that dude, that that's great. I I'm enjoying this book through you, which I really really appreciate. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, I it's still I, I knew that baffled me as I was you know writing that down, but now that I've actually said my piece, I, I'm baffled even more than when when I started how those things both happened virtually one right after the other. That's great. No, that's that's awesome. I love it. I'm I'm liking this uh, Lombardi football hour. Um, okay, so let's wrap it up. We got a big time game. Like I said, I, I need to get my optimism going. I need to put my big boy pants on. It's going to be tough. They're rugged. They got a great running back, probably the best in the league. They got two great wide receivers. They got they got a quarterback named Brock, and we all love quarterbacks named Brock. How are we going to win this game, Miles? What do you think? What, what, do, you, do you got a prediction for us going in? Oh, and actually, please tell the audience, what, what are you going to be eating besides turkey? Is there a side that you will be enjoying on Thanksgiving while you watch the Seahawks game? Uh, it's, I, mean, I don't... Our family goes a little non-traditional with sides a little bit. We, there's been a, a pumpkin mac and cheese that's gotten mm. in the mix that uh, is, is pretty exquisite. So, yeah, we, we, we like to go off the board a little bit, put a little, little variation on it. Nice. I, um, you have a... Yeah, I, I anticipated the question because I know you're a polite man, so I, 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 I was ready for it. Um, I, uh, Brittany makes, um, my wife, Brittany for the, for the audience at home. Um, she makes a really killer sweet potato. I'm just going to call it a sweet potato casserole, but it has kind of like candied, um, uh, uh, what's, what is it? Pecans that she puts on top and kind of toasts them. Right. So it kind of has a crispiness on top. I love it. It's one of my favorite things. So I'll have a nice helping of that along with some good Turkey, um, brought to you by Jason White, my brother-in-law. Um, shout out, Jason. Shout out to the turkeys. Um, a tradition we started many years ago, doing the turkeys together. Love it. So we'll be doing that. I'll be having a few beers. And I will be hoping that this is a lot like the last time we played on Thanksgiving, where Richard Sherman had two interceptions and we just made the 49ers look like fools. That's what I do on a normal Thanksgiving. This Thanksgiving with the Seahawks playing, it's just going to be me and a, a big Gatorade, orange Gatorade jug, uh, just staying hydrated throughout the game. Pre-game meal, just like normal. Good. Um, I will say this really quickly. I, I like the action green uniforms. I have no problem with them. I'm a little bummed to find out we're wearing them on Thanksgiving. I 
I feel like Thanksgiving would be the game to like wear the throwbacks again. Like it just feels, I, I know maybe that's, we're only doing that once a year or something. Um, I like the action green, but I kind of like it on a random Sunday at 10 AM. Like I, I don't know about action green prime time Thanksgiving, the nation's watching action green is like one of those outfits where I put on and I like it, but I'm like, I'm not like going, you know, out in big time public with it. You know, I'm not like going to a wedding in my action green suit. Um, I'm wearing my normal suit when I go to someone's wedding. I feel as though action green is a little inappropriate for national television on Thanksgiving. Like we were invited to the nicest party and we kind of show up looking goofy. Um, you know, it's different to show up to your buddy's tailgate at 10 a.m., you know, 10 a.m. kickoff. And it's like, oh, yeah, look, I'm wearing my action green. Oh, that's cute. That's funny. Cool outfit, man. Um so, you know, that's my one critique. If I if if the Seahawks front office is listening, I I, I personally wouldn't have made the choice. Um, I'm going to say optimistic, but I'm going to say this is going to be a very close game. This might be the same score I gave last week. I don't know, but I'm going to say the Seahawks win by three points. I'm going to say it's 23 uh, 20. Um, here's the thing is I do think as tough as it is this month coming up with hosting the Niners, then Cowboys, Niners, Eagles. I think it does, as terrifying as that is, I think it's really tough in the NFL to beat any team twice in one month. So you're going to play the Niners twice anyway. I think, there, I think there might be an advantage to playing them twice in one month. I think they're going to lose this one. I think we're still kind of on the, on the back heel from Sunday. Some crucial injuries still need healing up. I, I do... I would be very surprised if they got swept in the series, though. They did just get swept by the Rams. But I, I, I'm going to go. I think they're going to lose this one 30 to 16, but win that next one in a couple of weeks from now. 30 to 16. I, I mean, I, I like you calling your shot on it. Um, I'm going to say something about this game. Jamal Adams is going to play, and he's going to tear this game apart. I think that this is going to be a Jamal Adams energy game. I think we're going to feel him in that action green. In fact, when I picture Jamal wearing the action green, I feel a little better about it. I think this is going to be a big time game for him. So that's that's my hot take. Hats off to Jamal for providing the most positive energy. It was an all-time injured but helping your team game. It was, it was, unbel- it was on another level from... Anything I've ever seen before. And I'm pretty sure, if I'm remembering right, he was wearing the the hoodie, like that everyone's wearing right now in the NFL, but he had the the sleeves all the way cut off. And I mean, holy moly, he was rocking that. He looked he looked good. Those arms, Jamal, whatever I'm, I know I know you're listening. Whatever you're doing in the gym, brother, you just keep it going because those arms look on point. If I could get away with that and do the hoodie with the sleeveless hoodie. Um, I do that every day. So, um, yeah, shout out to Jamal and his arms. The arms were great, but the, the energy, it was getting me, it was getting me hyped up from the couch. No, I, and I That's agree. That's how much energy was, you know, it, all, it was the combo. In all sincerity. Yeah, no, I agree. It, he was, he was competing. He was doing his job, um, on the sidelines. You could tell he wanted to be out there. So, um, I think that's it for us, my friend. Have a lovely Thanksgiving. and. Um, As always, go Hawks. Go Hawks.